Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, Finding God in the Music, Season 14, Track 2. Might as, well just, might as well just get into it, right, Charlie? Might as well just go for it. The artist, the artist, the artist is Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. Foo Fighters. This is the second appearance of the Foo Fighters in Finding God in the Music. The first was eight years ago. So it's been a while since we've got the Foo out, but we're going to do that today. Uh, of course, you know, if you don't know, uh, Foo Fighters founded in 1994, David Grohl, drummer for Nirvana after the death of Kurt Cobain. This became his project and they have been doing it for a long time now. And they've been, you know, extremely successful. Uh, they've won 15 Grammys. They've put out 10 albums. Half of them have won the Grammy for best rock album. So, I mean, every other album they do is the best rock album that year. So they're, they've been very successful. Uh, last year, I read uh, David Grohl's autobiography, the, the Storyteller. Enjoyed that very much. Uh, of course, if we bring up Foo Fighters today, there's a bit of sadness uh, following the death of Taylor Hawkins, their drummer, in March. I was in Tiberias, Israel. Early one morning, I got a text that Taylor Hawkins had died. And it just oh, made me so sad. He, he, he was the embodiment of rock and roll enthusiasm and joy. He just always had that uh, glowing smile and, and really loved what he did. And so that was, a, that was a sad loss. Well, the song that I've chosen comes from the Foo Fighters' 10th and most recent album. It came out last year, Medicine at Midnight. And the song is Waiting on a War. Uh, Dave Grohl grew up outside of Washington, D.C. And he said that as a kid, his biggest fear was that there was going to be a war, especially a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And he talks about how, uh, did anybody remember that movie? I think it was on ABC television back in the 80s, the day after. He, he talks about seeing that and it gave him nightmares. And he was just always afraid that there was going to be a war. Okay, so then they were in the recording sessions for Medicine at Midnight, and he was taking his 10-year-old daughter to school, drop her off at school, they're in the car, and his 10-year-old daughter says, Dad, is there going to be a war? And she'd heard something on the radio or something, and it, it, she was concerned and she was worried about it. And Dave Grohl says, man, 40 years later, and still kids are worried about a war. He said, kids should be having fun. They should be playing. They shouldn't be worrying about a war. And he wrote this song. He wrote that song that day. It wasn't, he wasn't planning to have this song because he, he hadn't written it yet. They were in the recording sessions for Medicine at Midnight. They had all the tracks laid out, but then he wrote this one in one day and they recorded it and put it on the album. It's a good song. Um, it's, it's a simple song. As David Grohl said in an interview about it, he said it's not exactly Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> but it's a simple song, but it's a simple song that raises a worthy question, which makes it a very good song for finding God in the music. It starts off uh, acoustic, uh, but ends as a typical Foo Fighters 
rocking tune. So I hope you like it and then we'll deal with it. But Foo Fighters waiting on a war. Since I was a little boy with a toy gun Never really wanted to be number one Just wanted to love everyone Is it more to this than that? Is it more to this than that? Is it more to this than that? Is it more to this, more to this, more to this than just waiting on a
Yeah, that's rock and roll, my friends. That's rock and roll right there. We'll get back to the song in a minute. Last week, I spent two days going through 40 years worth of my sermons. 3,648 of them. There they are, from November 1981 till now. It took me two days. I didn't read them all because I'd still be reading, but I you know, skimmed them all. Looked at, looked at the title, some of them I read, some of them I did, okay, I remember that. I went through 40 years worth of sermons. It's one way of looking at my life. It's uh, a record of my theological journey. I noticed that the first 10 years, they weren't very good, <laughs> in my opinion. I looked at them, ah, they're too, uh, too prescriptive, too didactic, not enough narrative. 10 years on, I got better. Uh, for those that hung in there for the first 10 years, God bless you. Um, not many. <laughs> my sermons got much, much better theologically after 2004, and it happened fast. You could see it. It's there. So my evaluation of 40 years of my sermons, they've gotten better with age. That's a good thing. And uh, in 3,648 sermons, some are better than others. I mean, you would expect that, right? I mean, not everyone is the greatest sermon in the history of the earth. <laughs> some are better than others. But there was one category of sermons that stood out as truly terrible. Uh, these are the sermons that I actually regret having preached. If I could go back in a time machine and slap my younger self and say, stop that, uh, I, I would. And those were the sermons on eschatology. Eschatology, you know what that is? That's the theology of the eschaton. It's the, it's, it's the theology of the end, the, the theology of its end days, end of days, last days, end time stuff. Eschatology is not a take it or leave it theology that you can, or maybe it doesn't matter, tag on at the end of your theology. It's not. Our theological vision of where this is all headed has a profound effect on everything. I mean, where you think this is going determines so much of how you think about who God is and what God is like. If we ruin the end of the story, we ruin the gospel story. So my biggest regret as a preacher is preaching over 20 years of bad eschatology. If you, in case you don't know what I mean, I'm talking about like all that late great planet earth, left behind, rapture, antichrist, nutty dispensationalism. It's an aberrant eschatology that is barely a century old and has no historical precedent in the church. Though it began in England, John Nelson Darby, it really took root, has taken root in the United States, and from here it spread around the world through popular, very popular, but ridiculous books. Um, one of the most, well, one of the worst aspects of this bad eschatology is that we're just waiting on a war. Okay, we're back to the song. 
one of the worst aspects of this aberrant eschatology is we're just waiting on a war. Because according to this eschatology, before Jesus can return, there has to be a mega war in the Middle East. In this bad eschatology of dispensationalism, yeah, we're waiting on the coming of the Lord, but, we, but the way the system works is before the Lord can come, the war's got to come. So we're, we're ostensibly waiting on the Lord, but we're also waiting on a war. And for 20 some years, I preached this mistaken doomsday eschatology. And I regret it. I got a pile of sins to pay for and I ain't got time to hide. I'd walk through a blazing fire, baby, if you was on the other side. Another song lyric. Um, now, my defense is this. Here's my defense. My defense is, first of all, I didn't do it. I did it in good faith. You can do bad theology in good faith. But I'm from the Jesus movement. I'm just a Jesus freak. That's all I am. And I look back on the Jesus movement pretty fondly. And I think it was, it was a miraculous thing that happened among young people, beginning in California and America and spreading around the world. But it had an Achilles heel. And its Achilles heel was its eschatology. Its eschatology was terrible. But we didn't know it because it was the only thing we knew. It was Everywhere, Any, anybody, anybody here? Is there anybody here from the Jesus movement? Anybody? Am I telling the truth? It was just everywhere. It was in all the books. It was in all the in all the cassette tapes. Remember the cassette tapes? It was in the songs. Life was filled with guns and war, and everybody got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. It was just everywhere, and I picked that up. I didn't create it. I didn't invent it, but I certainly did pass it on. Thank God for N.T. Wright. <laughs> N.T. Wright has done a hero's work of helping rescue American evangelicals from their bad eschatology. God bless N.T. Wright. So for the past, I don't know, 16, 18 years, I've done everything I can to make amends. I have, I have here with me today the, the, um, Jesus-centered New Living Translation Bible that I wrote the introduction uh, to four books of the Bible for. Jonah, Matthew, Titus, and Revelation. When the publisher contacted me and said, we'd like you to write the introduction to four books in this Bible, uh, and they said, we'll let you pick, but you know, you never know what, because you know, people might pick the same one. Uh, I, the one I really wanted was Revelation because I thought I, I need, I've got, as I said, I got a pile of sins to pay for and I ain't got time to hide. And so I want to make amends. Now I was happy. I was thrilled to do Matthew, by the way. Uh, that, that was also a privilege, I thought, to open and close the New Testament. I won't read you the whole thing, but I do want to read this one little snippet. And it's, it's right there. So I, I think that, yeah, they had a picture of it up there. It's most important to remember what Revelation is and what it isn't. It's not a coded newspaper foretelling ge geopolitical events of the 21st century. It is a glorious revelation of the triumph of Jesus Christ. Jesus' lamb-like kingdom brings a saving alternative to the beast-like empires of the world. Revelation doesn't end 
I wrote this. Do you think I'd be able to read my own right here? Let's try it again. Revelation doesn't anticipate the end of God's good creation. It anticipates the end of violent empire. All right, so trying to make amends. Um, Obviously, I don't have time to teach the whole book of Revelation in its context this morning. You know, I've got about 15 minutes left max. So... I can't do that, but there is one image in Revelation I want to help you understand, and that is Armageddon. Are you ready for it? Let's go to Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with a Hebrew name Armageddon. With all the emphasis on Armageddon in popular but bad eschatology, one might think that the word Armageddon is extremely common throughout the Bible. In fact, this is the only time it's ever mentioned. It becomes famous through all of these nutty books. I mean, just put Armageddon on your title. My next book should should not be about Armageddon. It should just have Armageddon on it. Somewhere, somewhere in the subtitle, Armageddon, Armageddon now, racing towards Armageddon, looming Armageddon. What is Armageddon all about? Well, let's look at the, uh, let's look at what the context is. So John the Revelator, communicating through symbols, he depicts three evil spirits like frogs, kind of a dispersion on frogs. I think frogs are okay, but whatever. Three evil spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet symbolize the devil, the Roman Empire. That's that's just obvious. It's very clear. And the... um, the imperial priests are the false prophet. The imperial priests with their imperial religious propaganda. All right, so you have these three entities, the, Roman, uh, the devil, the Roman Empire, the imperial priests, depicted in Revelation as the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. And there's coming out of their mouths are evil spirits like frogs. And what these frog spirits do is they gather the armies of the world together for a great battle at a place in the Hebrew called Armageddon. Or if we're talking about Hebrew, Harmageddon. Har means hill. Megiddo is a, is a town. It's a city in the ancient Jezreel, in the, in the, it's an ancient city in the Jezreel Valley of the Lower Galilee. It's a very fertile plain, the Jezreel Valley, and there is a city there. I think we have a, maybe, yeah, that's a picture. We, we visit there every time we do our Holy Land pilgrimages. We go there generally on the first day, right, Perry? We're there on the first day because it's close to Tel Aviv. And uh, that's the ruins of this ancient city. That is, you, you can see that's Armageddon right there. There it is. You're seeing it. That's Megiddo, and it's called Har Megiddo because Har means hill. And you can see it's built on a hill, but it's not. It looks like it's built on a hill. It's not. That's not a hill. That's a tell. 
You know what a tell is? A tell is an artificial mound that has been built up over centuries or millennia by building, destruction, rebuilding, destruction, rebuilding, destruction, rebuilding, destruction, rebuilding. And at Tel Megiddo, that's what it's called today. At Tel Megiddo, there are 26 layers of civilization. Why are there 26 layers? Because it was built and destroyed 26 times. Well, why was this... Why was this city built and destroyed 26 times? Because of its fortunate and unfortunate location. It's fortunate in that the Jezreel Valley is a fertile plain and it's great for growing crops. And there's the, there's the uh, what's the name of that? The Kishon, what's the name of that river right down there by there? The Kishon, I think that's right. And so it's got a water source and it's fertile. So people want to live there. But it has the misfortune in the ancient world of being situated right in the corridor between the southern empire of Egypt and the northern empires of Assyria and Babylon. And they were always colliding there. Empires would rather go fight their wars somewhere else. They don't want to do it at home because war destroys things. And so Megiddo had the misfortune of essentially being built in a perennial battlefield. So that Armageddon is a symbol for war. It simply means war. Armageddon would sound to John the Revelator's audience the way Flanders Field, Omaha Beach, Hamburger Hill, Fallujah, sound to us. The moment we hear those, it evokes ideas of battle. So if I, if I say to you, Omaha Beach, the first thing that comes to mind probably isn't a seaside picnic, but rather a bloody battle because it's the site of D-Day and a bloody battle. Armageddon is a grim, poetic way of speaking of the horrors of war. And what we learn in Revelation 16, but really the whole book, is if we follow the lies of the devil and the ways of the beast, we end up at Omaha Beach or Fallujah or Armageddon. The book of Revelation depicts a choice that is always before us. It's a choice. We can follow the beast, all right? We follow the devil, we can follow empire, we can follow propaganda, imperial propaganda, all that sort of stuff. We can follow that. What's, what's, uh, how's the lyrics of that song go? I've been waiting on a war since I was young, since I was a little boy with a toy gun. Never really wanted to be number one. Just wanted to love everyone. That's, that's anti-imperial propaganda. Imperial propaganda says you got to be number one and you can't love everyone. So, the message is, if you follow the devil, the accuser, Hasatan, Diabolos, the dragon, and the way of empire, believing all, all along the imperial propaganda, it's going to lead you to Omaha Beach. It's going to lead you to Flanders Field. It's going to lead you to Hamburger Hill. It's going to lead you to Fallujah. It's going to lead you to Armageddon. But you don't have to follow the beast, you can follow the lamb. And the way of the lamb leads you to New Jerusalem. There's a choice. So 
Armageddon is always a looming possibility, but it is never an inevitability. Armageddon doesn't have to happen, or Armageddon's, because there's always Armageddon's. Another Armageddon doesn't have to happen for the Lord to come. Come on now, somebody just say amen. For those who confess that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and we will make that confession before we're done here this morning. For those of us who confess that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead, we are not waiting on a war. We're waiting on the parousia. We're waiting on the appearing of the Lord. We're not waiting on a war. We're not saying, well, we're waiting for Jesus to come, but we got to have this big old mega war in the Middle East first. No, we don't. In fact, I mean, if you, if you want to learn, I'm an advocate for that. If you want to learn, I'll, well, I'll just, get, cause I, I'll just give them to you. Just prepare to write them down quick. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you might read, well, you might read the three chapters in Sinners in the Hands of Loving God on the book of Revelation. That might be a good one. But you can read uh, The Theology of Revelation by Richard Bauckham. That's probably the best one. It's a little bit academic, but you can probably handle it. You can read uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael J. Gorman. Excellent book. You can re read Reverse Thunder, a poetic interpretation of Revelation by a poet on a poet, because, you know, there's a sense in which the book of Revelation is a, an epic poem. That's by Eugene Peterson, Reverse Thunder. And then uh, the, the Rapture Exposed, that's not exactly on Revelation, uh, but it's a good one. The Rapture Exposed by Barbara Rossing is a good one. And then N.T. Wright, he has his little the Bible for Everyone series, Revelation for Everyone. That's, that's real short and so it'll be the easiest one to grasp. I mean, we don't have to be dumb when it comes to the book of Revelation. This was, this is, I'm unscripted here now, you can tell. <laughs> um, what I was going to, what got me off here, what I was going to say was this, I don't want to get bogged down in the technicalities, but for what it's worth, John the Revelator was giving a prophetic interpretation of the AD 60s and 70s. In other words, um, the violent images of Revelation depict events of the first century, not the 21st century. They depict events of the first century, not of the 21st century. So the truth that Christian eschatology is not waiting on a war is important for two reasons. Number one, if we're waiting on a war before we think Christ can come again, we end up as a despicable people who are actually hoping for a war. Eww. I mean, if you have this eschatology, this is, I mean, how many, of, how many of us want the Lord to come? The consummation of the ages, the restoration of all this. That's, that's, the, that's the great hope. But if we have stuck between here and there, the inevitability of a mega war involving 200 million people, that Jesus is all gonna kill. If we literalize all of that, then we're stuck in the problem of becoming the despicable people who are actually hoping for war. And I see it happen. Wars and rumors of wars in the Middle East. Well, there's nothing new with that. That's always going on. And, but then you have a certain ilk of Christians like, oh, praise the Lord. It's happening. And instead of being grieved and heartbroken, 
They become excited about, I mean, what a terrible witness that is to the world if we are the despicable people who are hoping for a war. The second reason a doom and gloom inevitable mega war in the Middle East eschatology is so terrible is because it flies in the face of what Jesus said about peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. But you get this bad eschatology, and I've heard it, you get this bad eschatology and they're like, yeah, I'm suspicious of these peacemakers. They're probably working for the Antichrist. There won't be any peace, no peace yet. There won't be any peace until Jesus comes. To which I say, Jesus has come. Jesus has come. The favorite text of the early Christians from what we call the Old Testament, they just call it the Bible because it's the one they had, was Isaiah chapter two, that when Messiah comes, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But then we now, that was, that was their favorite text. And they said, we're living in that now. But then we have this bad eschatology comes along an imperial theology following Constantine and all that, and we just kick the can down the road. And we say, well, when Jesus comes back a second time, we'll walk in the way of peace when he comes back a second time. Oh, see that little, that little maneuver there? If you have bad blood moon eschatology, and that's what it is. You're just waiting on a war. Is there more to this than that? No. If you have that kind of asking, you're just waiting on a war. Is there more to this than that? No. That's not who we are, though. We are, well, we're called to be the blessed peacemakers that are the sons and daughters of God. And how can we be peacemakers in good faith if we're waiting on a war? How does that work? We're peacemakers, not warmongers. Peacemaking is the family business. That's why we're called sons and daughters of God when we engage in making peace. And so an eschatology that is in conflict with the Beatitudes must be rejected, so we reject it. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't have time to preach all the book of Revelation, but yes, they're, they're an army of 200 million. Why 200 million? Because that was, that was the population of the world as they understood it at that time. And they're gathered and Christ comes. He comes on a flying horse with a sword, not in his hand, but in his mouth. And they're slain. And the fowls of heaven devour their, their flesh. You say, see, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to kill 200 million people. No. This is a picture of the triumph of Christ through his word. In fact, it's like a political cartoon. He has written on him. The word of God. John didn't want you to miss this. This is not an Apache attack helicopter. This is the word of God. I'll say it. To, let me just make it clear. I am among those who have been slain by the word of God. And I say, indeed, may the fowls of heaven consume my flesh, not my embodiedness, but my carnality. And then I'm raised to newness of life to follow the lamb into the new Jerusalem. That's a good eschatology. And it also happens to be true. It happens to be true to the text. And so, 
As the blessed sons and daughters of God, we are not waiting on a war. We are marching forth to wage peace in the way of the Lamb. Amen. Now stand up with me. And first we're going to do is we're going to pray together. We're going to pray the prayer of St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi. He was one of those sons of God that was a blessed peacemaker. And from his legacy, we have this prayer. Pray it with me. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. What a beautiful prayer. We pray that every morning in our morning prayer liturgy. Now we have about 11 people, I believe, who are to be baptized this morning. Would you come down here? Would you 11 people come down here? And those of you, uh, well, just celebrate them. Just celebrate them. Yeah. Come on now. Fantastic. Yeah. This is great. Little Foo Fighters, little baptism, little communion. I hear they're going to give out popsicles at the end of the service. I don't know how you can beat this church. I really don't. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Baptismal candidates, as we call you. Uh, what we're going to do is first we're going to confess. We do this every Sunday, but we're going to do it. It's more special in this moment. We're going to confess the Apostles' Creed. This was, in fact the baptismal creed of the early church. Before you were baptized, you said, I believe this, and then they baptized you. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to, uh, we're all going to do that. And then, then we're going to confess our sins and receive forgiveness. And then we're going to receive communion. And then we're going to whisk you off to get ready to be baptized. Sound like a plan? All right, let's confess our Christian faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, 
your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.